You're listening to Absolute AI. Conversations with the humans behind artificial intelligence, where data scientists, ML researchers, startup founders, and enterprise execs talk about cutting-edge innovations and unique challenges posed by this new technological frontier. Tune in for interviews with leading experts to anticipate trends before they emerge. Darren Oberst is the Senior Corporate Vice President and Global Head of HCL Software. Today, he is responsible for the P&L, Product Development, Sales, Operations, and Strategy for HCL Software. Darren joined HCL in 2014 as a founding part of the team. Prior to this role, he served as the Global Head of Corporate Development. Before joining HCL, Darren spent 10 years at IBM in a diverse set of leadership roles across software, IT services, and BPO, where he launched and ran businesses in the US, Europe, and Asia, with international postings in India, China, and Spain. Darren started his career in Silicon Valley as an investment banker, group head of the software corporate finance practice, completing over 40 equity and M&A transactions. Darren has a JD with honors from Harvard Law School and a BA summa cum laude from UC Berkeley with dual degrees in physics and philosophy. Welcome to Absolute AI, Darren. Thank you for joining me today. Great. Thank you, Melody. Glad to be here. So starting kind of backwards in your bio, um, you studied physics and philosophy in your undergrad at Berkeley and then pursued law at Harvard. How did this mix of natural science and humanities set you up for future success? It's a great question. Um, And I actually have a son who's heading off to college. So it's been very fresh in my mind thinking about the choices of what you study and how it ultimately impacts you in the future. Probably on the positive side, I think it gave me a pretty broad set of skills um, just in terms of, you know, critical thinking, breaking down, you know, problems, coming at it from a lot of different angles. I think that's probably the positive side of it. I think the other side of it that I hope resonates with, you know, most people is I didn't really know what I wanted to do. Like a lot of young people, I was interested in a variety of different things and I wasn't quite sure how to translate that into a career. And so in some ways I was fortunate because I got that type of broad, you know, training. On the other hand, though, you know, it took me several years probably to start to figure out how to apply it and what I ultimately wanted to do with it in my career. So as you were figuring that out, I see again, you went into investment banking, but it already had sort of a tech edge to it. How did you transition into that focus and how did your interest in technology and eventually artificial intelligence and machine learning evolve as you were figuring out your way in your career? You know, when I was a kid, again, it's it's sort of one of these stereotypes, but I was one of those kids that you know, learned to program when I was 10 years old. I had, and again, it's one of those dates you kind of things. I mean, I had a VIC-20 and a Commodore 64. I was writing in basic. I taught myself assembly language. I was writing computer games and selling them to my friends. I wrote my own computer language. I was, you know, kind of a kid of the 80s and, you know, very much a technical hacker kind of kid. But, you know, when I got to college and sort of got to law school and beyond, I I didn't see myself fundamentally as a techie, but I knew that I had a pretty good technical background. I understood software pretty well. I liked coding, always enjoyed coding. I still like coding. 
This morning, I was up at five in the morning writing code on a, a passion project. So it's something that I've always, has always been part you know, of me. But I think I had a pretty simple sort of career aspiration, which was how do I get onto the business side of the software business? And so from studying physics and philosophy, I thought law school might be a good entree to that. From law school, uh, I moved into investment banking, was incredibly fortunate my first job was at a company called Robertson Stevens, where we were out every single day running around Silicon Valley in a meeting with small software startups. And so I was very fortunate you know, to start off my career getting that kind of exposure. And then the rest of my career since then has really been just continuing to pursue that pretty simple idea of you know, building a career on the business side of software. What attracted you to the business side? What do you think that allows that uh, maybe you couldn't do when you were uh, coding? I think the world's evolved also. You know, in the last decade, I think it's become much more the norm, almost the expectation, the, the reverse. It's the Mark Zuckerberg kind of model. It's that techie founder who ultimately then becomes the CEO or kind of as they said in the movie, right, becomes the boss. I don't think that was really the case, you know, when, when I was starting out in my career. I think at that point it was, you know, you needed a grounding in business, in strategy, in sales, in market development, that those were the kinds of disciplines that ultimately led to running the business. So perhaps, you know, if I had sort of come of age in a different era, come of age in this era, maybe I would have made some very different choices than I did, you know, at the time. Let's talk about some of those areas that you've become an expert in and led great projects for at HCL. Tell us a little bit about your role there and um, how you're driving that innovative team forward or many teams, really. So I'll give the maybe the quick 60 second, you know, sort of corporate overview of HCL, just, just in terms of the grounding. I joined the company about seven and a half years ago. HCL Technologies, as many people know, it's one of the largest global IT services companies in the world. Uh, at the time I joined, it was around four and a half billion in revenue. We actually, in the last year, have eclipsed 10 billion in revenue. So over the course of the last seven years, the company has been growing double digits on average every single year. So it's been a great run. It's been a great place to be. I joined the company to run corporate development. And it was really an opportunity to help think through what were new market segments, how could we pursue you know, innovative partnerships and creative business development, as well as inorganic activity to break into new markets. And one of the first areas that we began to look at, um, an initiative coming directly from you know, our board and our CEO, was how do we get into the software business? And it's a familiar story. I think most services companies at some point cross that line of how do we move to the other side of the fence? How do we become more IP-driven, asset-driven? How do we get into you know, higher margin, product-oriented business? But very hard. Again, when you look across the history of technology companies trying to do that, it's very, very hard when you have one operating model to move into you know, another segment of the industry. And so we put together a strategy that we thought was very novel, uh, was very defensible, and that we thought would really give us an incremental path towards building a large-scale software business. We entered into a series of partnerships, carve-out transactions, and acquisitions, as well as a lot of organic development. We started this journey around five years ago with a partnership that had been announced in the market with IBM. 
we launched what we were calling HCL products and platforms. And at the time, it was literally four of us. There were four people in it five years ago. And then over the series of all of these activities, today, we're one of the three major reported segments of the company. We're over a billion dollars in revenue. We have over 16,000 customers in 100 different countries. We have a product portfolio that consists of over 50 different products. And we've been on this really exciting journey of you know, modernizing and innovating that product portfolio, which really culminated with a pretty exciting announcement we had a couple of weeks ago in which we've launched all of these products as cloud native, and we've launched what we call HCL Now and the HCL Solution Factory, which we think is a really, really innovative cloud strategy that we think is going to be a game changer for our business. It's been a really exciting journey being part of HCL for the last seven years. Yeah, I want to hear more about this new cloud offering and this integration, because I did see that announcement on your website. And I want to talk about some of those strategies of how you were building that over the last five years. Um, connect that back to artificial intelligence, automation, and machine learning, and how you started integrating that or your plans for integrating that uh, further into the business. I think there's a metaphor that sort of ties together what we've done and really bridges to AI as well, which is, you know, so we've been on this transformation journey with these products as we've been building a business, you know, really from scratch and creating all the people, processes, systems, you know, capability around it. You know, one of our metaphors that, again, is widely used it's sort of the idea of sort of crawl, walk, run. And the idea that in any long journey and in trying to do anything that's really complex and transformational, you usually need to make sure you start and you get off to a good start and that the first few initial steps are in the right direction. Too often, if you try to run really, really fast when you start, that's usually when you fail right out of the gate. You know, a big sort of part of our playbook has been Let's get the right foundation in place. Let's not try to solve every problem, you know, until we're ready for it. And so as an example, you know, with cloud, there are a lot of companies, um, a lot of companies that had, you know, more established enterprise on-prem products that rushed to just throw them out on the cloud, throw them out in some sort of cloud announcement, call it cloud, host it in some way, um, and magic would follow. Many of those companies have been disappointed. And so the journey that we did was actually almost the reverse of that, which was we really started with the product, modernizing the underlying architecture, building out the kinds of functionality that our customers were looking for, focusing on key things from UI and UX, making the products easy to consume and easy to use and giving that kind of modern feel that a customer would want, making sure that we were accelerating high impact features because at the end of the day, it's what does the product do much more than the deployment model. And then at the core of the product, componentizing the product, exposing APIs, focusing on containerization, so that as you start to put all those pieces together, as you really modernize the whole product, then you actually move to the next step of launching it as a cloud-based service. And that gives the end customer really the benefit of the experience that they're looking for. And so that's very much the way that we've sort of rolled out our cloud strategy. Crawl, walk, run, focus on making sure the product is right before you just sort of throw it up on a cloud and make sure that you have a differentiated strategy. Our strategy is multi-cloud. We actually want to give our customers the choice. 
which is you tell us what cloud platform you want to deploy it on, including on-prem. And we're going to give you the same kind of experience and the same kind of capability. But now bridging to, to the AI part of the discussion, I think where we both want to get, I think there's, again, a very, very good analogy with AI, which is oftentimes everybody wants to jump to what's the latest, greatest state-of-the-art model. When in fact, you have to apply a bit of a crawl, walk, run of really look at your data to start with. And again, that's become such a cliche in a way in all of these uh, sort of AI and ML kinds of projects, but it all comes down to the data. And so, you know, as part of our product strategy, I've really discouraged a lot of our engineering teams from going to that next generation. I had one team that wanted to talk about you know, they were going to do some advanced reinforcement learning that was going to automate some capability that had never been automated before. And I said, let's just take a step back. Let's get very practical. How do we actually package up log data in the product? How do we make it reproducible? How do we start aggregating that kind of information? How do we start correlating that information with other sources that are going to be very relevant to the problem at hand? And then quite frankly, before we jump to reinforcement learning or a transformer-based architecture, hey, maybe, maybe just something simple would work. And again, I think in the real world, start with the simplest model, the simplest solution that you have. Make sure that you've got really good data and really good data quality. And that's usually the best place to start in any kind of AI initiative. That really echoes, I don't know if you've been following Andrew Ng, but he has been promoting data-centric AI and everything you said really echoes what he said. And he's obviously one of the foremost experts and innovators in creating those advanced models. And he said there has been this focus in you know building the newest models, tuning them. And he has a lot of examples of how Again, using a simpler model and really cleaning up the data, validating, making sure that things are just consistent, which is not, that's not like the sexy part of AI that's seen as kind of boring. But what's not boring is when you get these jumps in accuracy that have otherwise been incredibly expensive, time consuming, and, you know, wanting. And so, yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because I just listened to um, one of his panels on this. And I feel like the industry is finally catching on, as it were. So you mentioned getting up at 5 o'clock this morning to work on your own ML model or coding. So tell me about your hobby as a ML developer, researcher, and what parts of that drive you to get up at five and try your hand at it. My day job, I've, I've sort of described in detail. It's, you know, it's a business leadership job of, you know, a, a reasonably large, complicated business. Uh, lots of management reviews and pipeline reviews and cost reviews and people reviews and, you know, all, all the things that you would, all the things that you would expect. But my, my passion has always been, you know, writing code. And um, probably around six years ago, seven years ago, it actually actually started going back to when IBM, and I was there, announced Watson. And it sort of, uh, sort of reawakened, you know, my interest 
because you know AI has gone through all these you know sort of waves. But seeing what was happening, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013, it was this very fertile time of a lot of renewed interest in these kinds of approaches. I took the advice of a mentor of mine at IBM. He used a very simple phrase. He said, you've got to think like a hockey player. Great hockey player doesn't think where the puck is. He thinks where the puck is going. And it seemed clear to me, and it, just as clear as it is today, these types of predictive technologies grounded in machine learning aren't going away. They are the future. You know, they've become more prevalent in our life today than they were five years ago. They're going to be even more prevalent in our life five years from now. It's a long-term secular wave you know, around you know, the availability of large-scale data, the availability of large-scale compute, and increasingly figuring out how to put these pieces together to drive higher levels of automation, of optimization, of leveraging computers to find statistical patterns that people can never process or, or identify you know, directly. And more and more, being able to sort of automate functions that historically only people were able to do. So it seemed inevitable. And so I started where everybody starts. I taught myself Python, started looking through all the various libraries, started building models. It's purely a passion project. Again, I do want to make sure that's clear. It's not, it's not what I do for HCL. In fact, it's completely different from that. But there's an incredible, I think what gets people so excited about these technologies is anyone that's built a model where you take some data and you start running it through the model. And when you start seeing batch after batch after batch as the model's running and you see the loss coming down and you see the accuracy growing, anybody that's sort of experienced that, I think gets viscerally, passionately really excited because you think it's amazing. It's amazing that without sort of, quote, teaching any rules that this model just applying basically a, a straightforward application of linear algebra, you know, and, and multivariable calculus was able to start optimizing this and figuring out what would literally be indecipherable, you know, features to, to a human being and actually start drawing the right kinds of classification decisions. Anybody that's experienced that, I think, becomes like a religious true believer. And that's the exciting part about it. But I, I think the flip side of it is as a hobbyist, right? As someone that's just off doing this for fun you know, on my own, you build that model. And then unlike the researchers who are in a lab, who after building the model, running it in a very careful, controlled way on their test data or their validation data, and then writes a paper on it and publishes their new architecture and topology and, you know, all this stuff and advances the state of the art by point, you know, 0.01% or whatever. As a hobbyist, you take that trained classifier and you say, hey, what can I do with this? And you start applying it to data in the wild. And that teaches you something totally different. It teaches you a lot of times, a lot of times the models don't work. A lot of times they don't generalize. A lot of times the type of data that you're testing on or you're training on doesn't mirror the characteristics of the data that you experience in the real world. And so that becomes, I think, a sobering, you know, realization. You know, I've been following like, like a lot of people, you know, what's going on with autonomous vehicles. Some of it's amazing, but then there's also story after story after story in which the vision processing system, in one way or another, wasn't able to capture whether it was the light, whether it was the angle, whether it was a certain kind of sign, it simply wasn't able to process that in the way that was expected. And so again, I, I think just the sobering side of all of this is there is no doubt that any data that you train on, if you test with data 
that's prepared in the same kind of environment with the same type of statistical pattern, you will see in the lab great experience. But I think what most practitioners, and I think where a lot of companies get a bit disillusioned, is you then take that and start applying it in a more general use case. And you find that you find that the truth is just a lot more complicated to actually get that model to work in production. Yeah. And there's a crazy statistic that I think 80% of projects don't make it from prototype actually into production. And I think a lot of that has to do with what you just described. In your experience, have you seen projects that have worked and projects that haven't worked? And can you give me some insight into what you've felt like? Was it just luck? Were there fundamental things that learnings that people could build upon? I'm a big believer that you just have to keep it simple. Simple usually works. So I think when there's a good, clear objective that's well-defined, I think when the scope is relatively narrow, when the data is pretty high quality, I think you can have a ton of success. I think where projects are poorly defined, where the ambition is too high, or maybe not very well defined. And then also, I think a lot of the state-of-the-art models, I'll say as a practitioner, but as somebody that has a lot of experience in the software industry, a lot of them don't work as advertised. They just don't. You know, when you actually take those models and you apply the zero-shot kind of test, where you say, I'm going to go apply this to data in the wild, they don't perform very well. And again, so I tend to believe keep the model simple. You know, every day when, when you see the news about some of the large-scale transformer kind of language models that are being built with billions of parameters. GPT-3 and... Uh, yeah, and they're even like small now. I mean, I, yeah. I saw recently like 10 billion parameters. Yeah. <laughs> billion parameters. I don't know. Like I'm, I'm both in awe of that. It's extraordinary. Like does that at some point reach this kind of like terminator moment, some kind of emergent behavior that the model is so large, it reaches the level of complexity of some of the processing centers in our brain, does it? Or on the other hand, is it creating such an opaque black box that no one on earth can understand the inner workings of that model or predict the level of precision required, how that model will actually react in some kind of production environment? You know, every day I'm personally probably torn between those two poles of, wow, maybe we really are near some emergent moment, right? Where there is some sort of generalized AI. And on the other hand, thinking perhaps all of this, all of this is misguided because the models are so large and so complicated. At some point, who can understand the inner workings of a 10 billion parameter black box model? Maybe it's genius, maybe it's madness, who's to say, right? Yeah, and you brought up a really important point when you talked about autonomous vehicles, as well as with these large black box models that have kind of obfuscated how these are working. And that's why there's been a rise in this demand for responsible AI and explainable AI. And I was just reading an article about different methods for trying to explain, you know, how these algorithms are coming to their conclusions. 
and was very disappointed when they said that these huge models that you were referring to, what they've been doing is making other models that predict what that model will predict and then showing how they think that model got to that conclusion, which is interesting, definitely an interesting approach. But the model doesn't actually know how that big black box model got to it. And when you have um, situations where in my last interview, Dennis talked about two different types of ML models, and there's some that just add value, right? So if you take some photos and you put them on Facebook and they you want to tag your friends and it's like, here's three out of five of the faces. Aren't these your friends? And you're like, ah, oh, great. That's an additive thing. Like, Actually, three out of five isn't that good, but it has added something at all. And then there's other types of models. And this is for autonomous vehicles. This is for, you know, if you're going to get a loan, if you're going to move to the top of the pile for a job interview, things like that, that are really important in people's lives, the accuracy becomes so much more important. And the explainability of (laughs) why or why not did you get that loan? Why or why not? That's a really important thing. And again, uh, human beings, we have this desire for the complex. As a philosophy student, I'm sure if you are anything like me when I was studying philosophy, you know, the musings, the complexity of the universe was so illustrious. But that can also move us away from those simple solutions sometimes that are, in fact, better and again, better is, is tough, but... <laughs> I think explainability is a huge, huge challenge. And there's no good answer when you're building a black box model with 10 billion parameters. Even the mini, like the Distilbert kind of models, are still 100 million plus parameters. It's incomprehensible. It's incomprehensible. There's no way... And again, we can use heuristics. We can use examples. And I think oftentimes too often kind of the industry over indexes on a cherry picked example. One of my favorites, you know, word to vec very established algorithm. It's a very simple kind of neural network, easy to implement, easy to run. And people always talk about this sort of famous thing of converts words to a vector space and, and sort of the proof of it, you know, the proof is, and I hope I get it right. It's if you take woman plus king, it equals queen or some variant thereof, right? in effect, showing that it's mapped somehow the semantics of words in a way. I would ask people, how many people have actually downloaded a deployed, trained Word2Vec model and really started sampling it? Like really sample it. Don't just do the cherry-picked example. If you go look for that example, you will find a hundred tutorials on Word2Vec singing its praises as the greatest algorithm the world has ever seen because of, of an analogy like that. But sample it. Sample a trained version of Word2Vec. I have it running on my personal laptop. And start sampling and looking at a broader cross-section of words. And you see there's sometimes it works great. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes it picked up a lot of noise. So so many of these models also are trained out on the internet. And again, I I hope I don't misstate, but it it was one of the large transformer models. They went to a, a popular website. They scraped all the links from that website. And they scraped the links then that they said had like a user rating above whatever. Then they scraped, they went to like 25 million links from that website, extracted all that content. 
Now, on the one hand, it's pretty sensible if you look at it through the lens of let's basically get every word that's been written and we just want to build the biggest possible corpus we can to train with. On the other hand, how do you ever build an explainable model based on that? Who knows what's in that when you're gathering hundreds of millions of tokens, billions of tokens off random links all over the internet? And so then when you wonder when some of the output doesn't make any sense, it's because the input didn't make any sense. So I just, on so many of these, again, there's so much excitement that's justified, but I just think in a lot of areas also, coming back to some simple, pragmatic approaches, and you know, you mentioned my background in philosophy, if it taught me anything, you know, the history of science, the history of logic, foundations of logic are generally, the general principle, keep it simple. The simplest explanation the one that has the fewest variables is actually usually the right one. Yeah, that's a great takeaway. I would like to uh, to ask you some leadership questions. You've had such a fascinating career that's taken you all over the world, India, China, Spain. And uh, I would like to know, like, what are those core interests that drive you personally and have... Um, allowed you to, uh, or what methods have you honed to be a leader and not just in your home country, but in other places around the world? You know, I was very fortunate. My wife and I, my family, we spent over seven years outside of our home country. And I think you just learn a tremendous amount, you know, from doing that. You know, it's humbling. I think it forces you a lot of times to be in uncomfortable situations. I think it forces you to sort of challenge or confront assumptions maybe that you have or preconceptions that you have. And so again, quite literally being a, you know, a stranger in a strange land, so to speak, you know, being a foreigner, you know, working in a different, you know, business environment, a different culture and really embracing it and kind of leaning into it. You know, when we were expats, you know, you'd see some expats that would basically reject it. They would stay in their little bubble because it was, it was daunting you know, or it was intimidating to try to really immerse yourself, you know, in the local culture. If there's anything that I really tried to do is I, I threw myself in head first. I looked like a fool at times. I got scars, you know, on my face. I made mistakes, but I also learned a ton, you know, from that. And again, it, it was a really interesting experience then coming back to the U.S. And we came back when I joined HCL around seven and a half years ago. Uh, it took time. It took time actually to then reintegrate, you know, back into your, your home country, but it also gives you a different perspective on that. I think what I've tried to do, and again, I don't know that you ever fully succeed, but what I've certainly tried to do as a leader is just to recognize and appreciate, you know, that diversity of people. People are the same, but in a lot of ways, people are different. And, you know, you just have to, I think, be respectful of that. And I think really try to create an environment that's truly global, where every single day and you know, the calls that I finish and then, and then you get most excited by are when you realize, just got off a call with people from six different countries, all seamlessly collaborating with each other on a project. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Absolutely. What does that kind of diversity bring to projects? I think diversity is just essential. And again, diversity kind of with a, a big D, but also diversity with a little D. You know, an, an experience I had um, in China, and it's a story that I, I've told a lot because I think it, it was a very profound kind of learning for me, is 
if you think about the experience that many people have when you go and you visit a place like China, you fly in, you usually have some local host who's kind of taking you around. That person usually speaks pretty good English. Maybe they've at some point, they lived in the UK or they lived in the US and they're kind of your, your local host. And then you're brought into some meeting, usually with that person and a couple of other people that have been carefully curated you know, for you to meet, who also probably speak better English or more comfortable. But when I lived in China and you get past that, what I would find when we would have those meetings, those brainstorming meetings, those workshops, is oftentimes I needed to listen. And oftentimes it was the person in the back wall who didn't speak English very well. And you could almost see their discomfort as they were trying to communicate their idea. But that was the person that had the breakthrough idea. And the only reason they were in the back of the room, and the only reason that you were spending all your time and energy was because of language. And so again, what I try, and sometimes I succeed, sometimes I don't, but what I really try is to recognize that the person dominating the discussion in any meeting may or may not be the best person. They may or may not be the person that has that idea. There are a lot of other styles. There are a lot of other approaches. And I think, how do you really bring together a mix of different people to find ultimately the best idea? And I think when you have that, when you succeed at that, I think that's really special. I think that's really exciting in those moments when you actually achieve that ideal. That's a great story. And I think that one that hopefully will resonate with a lot of people, because I've definitely experienced that as well, learning even about, you know, introverts versus extroverts. And you need both on your team and and you need to figure out a way to uh, create a little bit more space for those those introverts that have great ideas but don't feel as comfortable verbalizing them right away or breaking through. Absolute AI is sponsored by Inadata, a leading data engineering company. From startups to enterprise, Inadata delivers ground truth training data and customized AI services and platforms at scale. Learn more at Inadata.com. My last question is uh, a little silly, so <laughs> take it however you want. But um, if you were to write a sci-fi novel about the year 2041, what does the world look like and have the robots taken over? Wow. <laughs> so I'm going to answer it indirectly with just an analogy that's been in my mind lately. If you remember when Netflix started, you know, it's been amazing to see like how Netflix has evolved. I mean, over the course of the pandemic, right? I mean, how much how much Netflix have have you watched, right? I, I can't think everybody tell you. it's embarrassing. <laughs> right. But think about think about how amazing Netflix evolution is. So you asked me a question 20 years out. So think back when Netflix started, I think it was in the early 2000s. It was kind of a dopey idea. It was you go to a website, you order you know, <laughs> the DVD, the, uh, the DVD <laughs> right? And then they mail it to your house. Yeah. It was kind of a dopey idea. But underlying that was a brilliant premise, a brilliant premise. The brilliant premise, once you get the customer, once you get them signed up, once you get them coming to your site, when bandwidth gets there, they're all going to come with you. Remember again, at, you know, in 2010, 2012, early 2010s, right? That's when the whole thing flipped and it flipped like a switch. 
once bandwidth and the ability to really stream, once that came into place, their business went just thermonuclear. Yep. And I, I maybe that's a bad analogy. It, <laughs> it, it skyrocketed. There you go. <laughs> but they bet on the right premise and they bet on it the right way. However, if in 2001, if they had said, we're going to stream to you, probably wouldn't have worked because the experience would have been terrible. So they laid the right business foundation with a long-term bet that the technology was eventually going to catch up and how to make sure they weren't in the right position when it did. So the reason I mentioned that in, in answer to your question is I think that's probably the lens we need to look at the next 20 years. Some things won't change a lot. Some things in 2041 will be pretty similar to the way they are in 2021. Some things that we think are obvious or right around the corner won't be. Just like in 2001, there were some things that I think we all would have said, oh, of course, this will be the case. It won't be. Or it'll be nonlinear. In 2001, people had thought of the idea of the internet on a mobile phone, but the iPhone didn't exist. And the iPhone became this transformational event that got everybody just staring at their phone screens all day. <laughs> yeah, for better, for worse. So there's also unpredictable events that will happen over the course of the next 20 years, for better or for worse. And so I think, again, as, as sort of a closing thought on AI, I think that parable for Netflix is a good one, which is I would not bet against AI. I would say over the next 20 years, there will be transformational moments in it. But I'd be equally careful in 2021 or 2022 or 2024 to lean out too far against that curve. And I think a good strategy is how do you think through what Netflix did. So as the technology is ready, as some of those pivotal moments happen, that you're really well positioned to actually capitalize on those moments. Fabulous. Well, this was such a great conversation, Darren. Thank you so much for joining me today. No, thank you. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed the show, please help spread the word by telling your friends or writing a review. 